Hi, I'm Andrew, and this is the Daily Keenon podcast about today's global crisis. The coronavirus pandemic is dramatically disrupting not only our own daily lives, but also society itself. This show features conversations with some of the world's leading thinkers and writers about the deeper economic, political, and technological consequences of the pandemic. It's the daily podcast trying to make long-term sense out of the chaos of today's global crisis. Hello, everybody. It is February the 5th on the West Coast, lunchtime on Friday. Many of you are thinking about the weekend. We're all preoccupied with our uh, personal thoughts, some of which are more relevant than others. We're all worried about dying, perhaps, in COVID or saving our relatives, or what are we going to do at the weekend, or what are we going to have for dinner, or what are we not going to do, or how are we going to cure our boredom in these weird COVID times. So given all those preoccupations, most of them rather trivial, here's something for you to think about and read. I will tell you a thing that is both impossible and true. You were born from a tiny seed within your mother, and she was born from a tiny seed within her mother, and she from her mother, and so on, back and back through the dim hallways of time until we arrive at a particular cave in Africa, a hundred thousand years in the past, with a particular woman sitting by a fire. That woman knew nothing of cities or automobiles or electricity. But if we could follow her daughters through time, we would eventually arrive at you. Wonderful writing from my guest today, uh, a man who doesn't need much of an introduction, uh, Alan Lightman. He's the author um, uh, of a new book, which is very probable, actually, given his uh, intellectual and scientific resources, a book of essays, Probable Impossibilities. Uh, Alan. Why, we, why, Alan, are we so interested in beginnings? The subtitle of your book is Musings on Beginnings and Endings. And this is a scientific book of essays by you about beginnings and endings. But it's also deeply personal. What is it about humans that make us so obsessed with beginnings? Well, I, I think we want to know where we came from. And of course, everybody is interested in their direct ancestors, their parents. Those are our first beginnings. And many people are interested in their ancestral lineages, going back to grandparents and great grandparents. Uh, we like to understand why we are who we are. Um, uh, what countries did our ancestors come from? But if we if we take a, a deeper interest and go back beyond our parents and grandparents and their parents and, and back to the early primitive Homo sapiens on Earth, and then back beyond that to when we were one cell organisms swimming in the ocean, and even back beyond that when there was a a gaseous cloud that condensed to form the earth and the sun and the solar system and even back before that to the 
origins of the universe, we really get down to the bedrock of beginnings. And uh, I think that, that that has both philosophical and theological interest as well as personal interest. Yeah, and it's it's very chilling. Uh, we had um, uh, a, a cultural anthropologist, Kermit Patterson, on the show a few weeks ago talking about his book, Fossil Men, which is a story of Ardy and Lucy, our earliest uh, ancestors. Um, what's your reading of our obsession with these immediate ancestors, Alan? Is it a scientific or a theological quest? Well, scientifically, of course, we're, we're, we're just interested in, I shouldn't use the word just, we're interested in the evolution of our DNA over time. And we can actually track that uh, in laboratory with laboratory technology. But I think that speaking non-scientifically, we're interested in how similar we are to other animals. Uh, uh, I think that m most people understand that, that human beings are animals and how similar are we? I think that our DNA differs from the the DNA of a, of a, of an ape by only like three percent, and I think it, it helps us understand our place in the world of of living things. Uh, of course, you can get into the debate of 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 evolution and and, and natural selection. Uh, but uh, putting that debate aside, we're just interested in where we came from. I think that's a natural human interest. I don't know whether I can explain it psychologically uh, any more than just saying that it's a natural interest. I mean, when we go to, whenever I go to, the, to, to a zoo and I see apes and monkeys and gorillas, and they're often doing very intelligent looking things, I feel some kind of kinship to them. And I, maybe, maybe it's connection. It's, it's wanting to feel connected to, to nature and to living things. That connectivity um, brings to mind, uh, Alan, I know this is a book you know. It's one of my favorite books, uh, Italo Calvino's Mr. Palomar. And anyone who's familiar with that book, and everyone should be familiar, it's one of the great masterpieces of the 20th century, mm -hmm. the great moment when Mr. Palomar goes to the zoo. Of course, Mr. Palomar is named after a telescope and the right. whole metaphor of looking and, and Mr. Palomar searching for himself at a zoo. Do you do that sometimes, Alan, when you go to the zoo? Are you Mr. Palomar? I am. Um, I... I... I'm looking for myself and, and other animals. Uh, I can relate one experience that I had, uh, which is the most intense connection that I've ever had with, with other animals. Uh, and th in this case, it was wild animals. My wife and I spend our summers on an island in Maine, and there's an osprey's nest just 100 feet from our house. And uh, the ospreys have a regular life pattern where uh and around april that the parents 
come to the nest. They've been vacationing in, in South America or someplace like that. And the, the mother lays the eggs and the eggs hatch at the end of May or beginning of June. And the baby ospreys grow up over the summer, unable to leave the nest because they're not strong enough. And one summer I was, I was watching the babies all summer as they got bigger and bigger. And I was standing on a circular deck, uh, a second floor deck on my house and it's shaped like a circle. So the birds were looking at me and I, as I was looking at them and to them, it must've looked like I was in my nest because I was standing on a circular desk. So we're sort of looking at each other all summer long. And around the end of, uh, August, they, the birds, the two babies had enough strength to fly away from the nest for their maiden flight. And a, an adolescent osprey is a very big bird um, and they have powerful claws. And the two young adolescent ospreys uh, did about a half mile loop on their maiden flight. And then they did a loop over the ocean and then they headed straight for me as I stood on the deck at, at ferocious speed. And uh, my first instinct was to run into the house and hide, but something made me stand there. And when they got about 10 or 15 feet away from me, coming straight at me, they suddenly did this, uh, this huge 10 G acceleration straight upwards and went up and over the roof of the house. But in about, and, and, right before they did that upward acceleration for about a half a second or a second, they looked at me straight in the eye. We made eye contact and I felt like I was communicating with them and they were communicating with me. I felt in that split second that they were telling me something like, we've lived on this land together. We share this land. We're brothers. All of that was conveyed in that half second. And I've never had any communication with any animal the way it was in that half second when I made eye contact with those ospreys. Your childhood was very rich. That that was a, a remarkable episode. But you, you write about your childhood um, uh, in Memphis, Tennessee, uh, in the book. Uh, I'm quoting, uh, it was a Sunday afternoon. I was standing alone in a bedroom of my home in Memphis, Tennessee, gazing out the window at the empty street, listening to the faint sound of a train passing a great distance away. And suddenly I felt that I was looking at myself from outside my body. For a brief few minutes, I had the sensation of seeing my entire life and indeed the life of the entire planet as a brief flicker in a vast chasm of time with an infinite span of time before my existence and an infinite span of time afterwards. Why did this experience, Alan, stick with you so dramatically? And what is it about time that intrigues children, perhaps animals too? The experience sticks with me because I think it was the first moment in my life when I was aware of, of the cosmos on the large scale. And I know that sounds corny, but I had this sensation of, as I said, 
uh, in those words, getting out of my body and, and seeing myself from outside of my body and seeing a connection to the, to the stars. And uh, it stuck with me because it was such a powerful moment and it was an awakening. You know, it's, it's like we, we all remember our first love affair. It's an awakening to a whole new dimension of awareness. And it's, it's, it, you don't repeat it. I mean, I mean, you might have awareness later on, but you don't repeat that first moment, just like you can't ever repeat your first love affair. Um, it was a love affair with, with existence. Um, but it was interesting that that love affair with existence, that discovery of the cosmos was was not scientific it was no intellectual it was artistic your your uh, blogger is called our artful cosmos and what you've done so brilliantly in your career is bring together creativity and science did you know even as a child that the cosmos was an an artful thing was that one of the was that the sort of the 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 the, the residing experience of 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 of, of existing outside yourself well, I can say that that I was very interested in the arts as a child. I, I wrote poetry and short stories, and I had uh, two groups of friends. I had my science friends, and those are the people who relished doing their math homework. And then I had my art friends. Th those were the friends that, that like ambiguity and wrote for the literary magazine and so on. And I, I knew that there were these two different ways of being in the world and were both important, both vital. Uh, so I guess in that sense, you could say that I realized that the cosmos was artful. I wasn't thinking that huge, hugely when I was a child. I mean, in terms of the cosmos as a whole, but I knew that there were, there were people who were more tuned in to other people and there were people who were more tuned into their math homework um i i do think that that you you asked whether that that experience that are related uh, of getting out of my body that it was not a scientific experience um i i of course being a a scientist i have great admiration and respect for the power of science but i also think that there's territory beyond science is very meaningful uh that there are questions that, that science can't answer that we have uh transcendent experiences like the one i described with the ospreys and and that experience i had uh feeling that i was outside of my body uh, those kinds of experiences that are, that are not really reducible to just the firings of neurons in the brain, e even if even though I, I am a materialist, I think that that everything is material. Um, I do believe that, that we have experiences that are not easily understood in terms of material. Perhaps one of the reasons why you're caught between the scientific and the artistic community is, and maybe I'm being unfair on scientists, but they struggle to be sad scientists, whereas, of course, that's the business of the artist, of the poet, of the writer. 
this book in a way is rather sad um you go home the ghost house of my childhood in the book you're trying to return to your beginnings your father or i, I think it was your father has just died um but there's something metaphysical about this and of course you're never really able to return are you so this book these musings on beginnings and endings are musings in a sense on the impossibility of beginnings and endings is that fair yeah i think that is fair i mean it's interesting that you put it in terms of sadness which is um, a very human thing and perhaps the yeah. birds that that osprey shared it too perhaps that's yeah. how you communicated with the osprey you had this this moment of sadness that you were both able to experience well it's interesting and i don't i don't know the answer to this but i know it to be true uh and i i don't i have no explanation for it but i think that the greatest art has been produced in an in a context of sadness rather than happiness and I don't know why that is, but I, I think it's true. Um, for some reason, sadness touches us more, more deeply. Um, it, it, it brings out more emotion. It, it, I would say it even brings out more creativity. Um, I don't have an explanation for that. Probably if we had an evolutionary biologist, they might, or a psychologist, they might be able to tell us why. Well, maybe we need a poet. And in a sense, Alan, you're a poet. One suggestion of why we're able to experience sadness is because we understand that we're mortal. Uh, here's another mm. wonderful quote from the book. And it's, it's, a, it's a tremendous book, Alan. I have to congratulate you. I deal with books every day, and usually I don't say that. Early August, I'm lying in a hammock amusing on mortality. A hundred years from now, I'll be gone, but many of these spruce and cedars will still be here. The wind going through them will still sound like a distant waterfall. The curve of the land will be the same as it is now. A lot of this book is about not only your own mortality, our mortality as a species, um, and this quest for spirituality. My sense with you is that whilst you will never admit publicly to being spiritual and having some some belief in religion you actually are is that unfair well i i definitely uh, uh happily and proudly admit that i'm spiritual but i'm also a materialist so i'm i'm this odd combination of what i call a, a spiritual materialist i was going to say something to your comment about sadness and mortality um i think that that a lot of our art and and our religion and our philosophy is connected to our mortality and the realization that we have a finite lifetime and i think that's one of the reasons why we try to make these connections um understand beginnings understand ends um understand how we are connected to other people i think feeling connected somehow soothes our anxiety and our sadness over being mortal because it, it gives us the possibility of, of of somehow enduring after our mortal death 
Is there a religion, if there is a religion, though, in your writing in this book, in your broader writing, Alan, perhaps it's about the human body. You say, this is from your blog, I would argue that, the, and, and you write the same in, in, this, in the essay, Probable, Impro uh, Probable Impossibilities, I would argue that the human body is more complex and more amazing than any other known object in the universe. You're in awe of the human body, aren't you? Yes. Why? Well, I think it's it's that that we are walking miracles. Uh, all of the the invisible microscopic processes that are going on billions and billions per second that that keep our organs working, that keep us alive, uh, that keep our thoughts going. The way that that we, if you cut yourself, the way that the, the blood congeals and forms a scab. Uh, the way that we, when we're infected by an illness, that with our body forms antibodies. And you have to realize that this vaccine for the coronavirus, it's just triggering the natural antibody response of the body. Um, the, it, it's a partnership with the body, but the, bo the natural body is, is, is doing most of the work. Uh, right, and, and you blog about that, uh, uh, the vaccine and us, in which you're suggesting that that's the miraculous nature of the vaccine yeah. against yeah. COVID. Yeah, I think that, that, that we are, that our bodies are miraculous, um, not, not in the sense of being supernatural, because I think it's all natural, but, but all of the, the mechanisms that our, our body has going on all the time that we're not even aware of, uh, it's going to take a very, very, very long time for uh, uh, a, a laboratory to create one living cell from scratch. And then think about the whole human body, which is trillions of cells. This book is also, in some ways, I think, an attempt to escape from beginnings and endings. In other words, to, to get to the eternal. You, again, uh, uh, you have this wonderful, um, wonderful ability to put really complicated scientific uh, ideas in, 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 in language accessible enough that even an idiot like me can understand it. You write, what I feel and know is that I'm here now at this moment in the grand sweep of time. I'm not part of the void. I'm not a fluctuation in the quantum vacuum. Even though I understand that someday my atoms will be scattered in soil and air, that I will no longer exist. I am alive now. I am feeling this moment. I can see my hand on my writing desk. I can feel the warmth of the sun through the window. And looking out, I can see a pine needle path that goes down to the sea. What should scientists take away from that? We know what artists would take away from that, Alan. Well, what I'm partly describing there is, is consciousness. And consciousness is one of the greatest mysteries in science. We, we don't really understand how the, the uh, electrical and chemical actions of our 100 billion neurons produce a sensation that we call consciousness. We don't understand how that works. So I think what I'm trying to describe there, which Virginia Woolf did much better in her books, uh, particularly Ms. Dalloway, 
where where she captures beautifully what it means to be alive and 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 to have all of the sensory input of sounds and sights and smells coming into your mind at once and and having all of that swirl around with your memories of people and what you're going to do the next hour all of that happens in an instant and virginia wolf captures that so well i think she's talking about consciousness there and uh that's 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 at the forefront of of biological science you know what 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 is consciousness we still don't understand it and it requires beginnings and endings i was intrigued that the one musical work you wrote about in the book symphony the bruckner's number no. nine symphony mm. uh is an unfinished one everything mm. is unfinished isn't it alan really when it comes yeah. down to it everything's unfinished I, I know that i am in fact i hope i never am finished uh but that's one of the things that I wonder about with science, that if we ever had all of the, knew all of the laws of science and we, and no revision was needed, would we, would, we would continue to be impelled to seek out the mysterious. You know, Einstein has this wonderful quote where he said, the most beautiful experience we can have is the mysterious. It lies at the true cradle of both science and art. And I think that the unknown, the mysterious, is what drives us in both our, our science and our art. So I hope that, that we're never finished, that our science is never finished, that our art is never finished, that we are never finished. Well, as an appropriate end to this, since we're talking about finishings, Alan, you write about an audacious attempt by the great uh, British physicist Freeman Dyson, I know his uh, daughter Esther, to mm. imagine the end of the universe, the end of everything. Mm -hmm. uh, it's chilling and surreal at the same time. And in a peculiar way, it kind of dovetails with your focus also on Borges' Book of Sand and his obsession with infinity. What did Borges and Dyson imagine as endings, particularly Dyson? Well, Dyson... Uh... Of course, he was using a cosmological model, which is out of date now. Uh, uh, he didn't know that the universe is accelerating. Uh, but what he was imagining and, and asked the question, if the universe is expanding and thinning out and all the stars are dying, will, they'll, will, there, will there still be any form of life in the universe? And uh, he calculated that, yes, that, that there, there still would be life uh, in the form of communication, that the, 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 the time between signals of sending a signal out and getting a signal back would lengthen and lengthen and lengthen. Uh, so it'd be longer and longer before you got a return for your phone call. Um, I mean, some people never call me back, no matter even now. Yeah, uh, well, you should you should shame them, Alan. I can't believe they're not returning. Who, who is this? Your uh, your your agent? <laughs> but there was a little optimism in, in Dyson's calculation because he was saying, yes, even though the universe is expanding and getting colder and colder and dimmer, that 
with the dwindling energy resources that we still will be able to communicate as long as we're patient and are willing to wait millions of years between calling back, calling out and getting a call back. But that universe, uh, Alan, isn't quite as chilly as some people think. You suggest uh, with the discoveries of the Kepler satellite in the last five years, it's almost certain that life exists elsewhere in the universe. That's going to please the our science fiction community, the Star oh. Trekkers and all the other people watching this. So so there is life elsewhere. We oh, yeah. Feel alone. I don't think there's any, I don't think any scientist doubts the fact that there's life out there. Whether we can communicate with that life is another question. I mean, it, the, the distance between stars is large. And uh, it may be that, 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 that habitable planets or the inhabited planets are just so far apart that uh, on practical terms, we will never be able to communi communicate with each other. But I have no doubt that there is life out there. Well, there may be life out there for those of you stuck at home uh, in these weird times. Uh, you absolutely have to read this amazing new book, uh, Probable Impossibilities, uh, Musings on Beginnings and Endings, a profound uh, meditation on, on science and art and life and spirituality and all the rest of it. Really incredible book. Congratulations on that, Alan. Uh, I know you're stuck just outside Boston. I don't know if there's snow on the ground, but like the rest of us, you're stuck at home. What are, in addition to probable improbabilities, uh, Alan, what else should people be reading in these strange times to, to keep themselves warm, to warm them up until extraterrestrials arrive on Earth? Well, one book that I've read many times and I keep reading it um, is this, this little book, Letters to a Young Poet by Raina Maria Rilke. And it's really about the creative life. But there's a, a, a young poet who writes to Rilke, and, who is a great German poet, around 1900 and says, should I should I keep writing poetry? And Rilke says, you should only write if you cannot not write. Um, and, and he also says in that book, we should learn to love the questions like, like rooms that we've never been in, like, like languages in a very distant tongue. And, uh, I, I think that in, in the times that we're living in now that, that I want to read something that's, that's, that's calming and is serene. And this little book does that. Well, I'm all in favor of serenity in these strange times. Uh, I want to thank you so much, Alan Lightman, a wonderful opportunity, a real privilege and honor to talk to you. And I hope you'll come back on the show more. I wanted to talk to you about quantum physics, CRISPR, maybe we can have another conversation about the harder sciences. Thank you again, and have a very happy, healthy uh, 2021. Same to you, Andrew. Thank you for inviting me to your program. You've been listening to Keynote, hosted by me, Andrew Key. Make sure to join us the rest of this season as we explore how to fix capitalism. Make sure to visit us at lithub.com, where you can subscribe to the show in iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, 
or wherever you listen to your podcasts. While you're at it, if you enjoyed what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, that would also help too. Today's episode was produced and edited by Justin Alvarez and the team at LitHub Radio. See you next week, and thanks so much for listening.